Evangelist Billy Graham once said that if he had his life to live all over again, he would definitely put more emphasis on the cost of discipleship. The grace of the Lord is not cheap. In fact, the great Christian hero of World War II in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote that cheap grace means grace sold on the market like inferior wares. And if preachers aren't careful, the sacraments, the forgiveness of sin can be sold in churches at cut prices, while the Lord's grace is presumed upon as an inexhaustible treasury. We mustn't preach grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, people suppose, is that the account has already been paid in advance, and because it was paid by Jesus on the cross, everything can be had for nothing. So cheap grace is a dangerous error, and it's part of the ongoing scandals in today's churches. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. Let's confront the scandal of fake, easy Christianity. World War II martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer once described so-called cheap grace as the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, coming to the Lord's table without self-examination and confession, absolution without personal confession. So cheap grace amounts to grace without discipleship or grace without the cross. The Lord's grace, though free, is costly, and costly grace is the treasure that Jesus spoke about in his parable of a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a person will go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the pearl of great price. It's the kingly rule of Messiah. The call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his net, so to speak, and follows him. Costly grace is the gift which must be sought, the door at which a person must knock. While in the West, where we've enjoyed so much religious freedom, Christianity has degenerated into an easy gospel that amounts to just believe in Jesus. No other demands are made. But what about baptism, regeneration, sanctification, turning one's back on sin, deciding to lead a holy life? Aren't we supposed to be born again, radically transformed? What is the genuine gospel? Well, in the Great Commission in Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, when you go to preach, the subject should be that the Hebrew prophecies were fulfilled about the Messiah's suffering and rising from the dead on the third day. And he said to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He also said signs and wonders will confirm the truth of the gospel. So Jesus said, we're going to start in Jerusalem and go the world over with the good news message that 
people can be forgiven of their sins in the name of Jesus if they choose to turn around and repent. So he says, start where you are and keep preaching far and wide as you're led. And if they persecute you in one place, move on. Don't waste time arguing and casting your gospel pearls before swine and swindlers. If you're rejected, knock the dust off your feet and find somebody else who will listen. Keep moving. There are other fish in the sea. Now, this is not being preached, but Jesus also carefully cautioned his followers to count the cost of becoming his disciples. In Luke chapter 14, we have a scenario of huge crowds traveling with Jesus, but he turned to those hordes and he said they would have to meet certain qualifications to be his genuine disciples. That meant not everybody following him was truly qualified. This brings to my mind Gideon, one of the judges in the Hebrew Bible, who led tens of thousands, but God said some of his men had to be eliminated due to fear. So out of 10,000 soldiers remaining, most were not vigilant enough. Their carelessness disqualified them. In the end, Gideon's band was whittled down to a remnant of only 300 men. So now in the New Testament, we see Jesus with thousands of people following him, but he says to the crowds, some pretty startling things. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Well, the word hate here sounds incredibly harsh, but Jesus didn't mean hate in the sense of despising your loved ones. No, he used hate as a Hebrew idiom for preference. He's asking for nothing less than loyalty. He's asking for the whole heart because the heart can't be given by halves. So if need be, Jesus' disciples must be willing to abandon family and their own plans whenever asked to do so. And then he added, and whosoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You see, in Jesus' day, the cross wasn't a piece of jewelry. It was a form of execution. The condemned person had to carry his own cross beam on his back to his place of execution. The Lord further explained the cost of discipleship. He said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete the tower? Because he said, if you don't finish it, everyone will ridicule, saying, this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. And indeed, the Christian landscape is strewn with half-built towers. That's the observation of John Stott, the late Anglican clergyman and an evangelical leader. Stott wrote that the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of many derelict, half-built towers. Thousands, and I would dare say millions, still ignore the Lord's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to consider what the cost is going to be. The result of such carelessness is the great scandal of nominal Christianity. 
There's a whole world of people who need to hear the true gospel, and many of them are in the churches. But fake, easy Christianity isn't the only scandal in the church world today. I'd like to mention at least two other widespread scandals in our end-time churches. And one of these scandals is the lack of real biblical faith to believe all of the promises of God in this holy book. And equally scandalous is the neglect of Bible prophecy. How especially scandalous is that when Bible prophecy is speaking loud and clear in this very hour to anyone who has ears to hear. Ignorance of Bible prophecy is all the more scandalous because we're living in the culmination of great prophetic events foretold in the Bible. And the church should be awake and should be monitoring what's going on in Bible prophecy. We've simply got to get over this scandal of unbelief, especially as we see the Bible prophecies being fulfilled and all the signs that point to the second coming of Jesus. Why aren't the churches talking about and anticipating the soon coming rule of Jesus on this earth during his millennium? With great enthusiasm and anticipation, the Orthodox Jews are saying in Israel that Messiah is coming imminently. So for heaven's sake, why aren't the churches saying Jesus is coming? Isn't this what we pray for all the time in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet most churchgoers are living like there's no second coming in no millennium. If you ask the average churchgoer, what is the millennium? That's the thousand-year rule of King Messiah on David's throne. Very few are familiar with Bible passages about the thousand-year rule of Messiah when Jesus returns to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the scandal of not believing the promises of God is due to the sad reality that most unbelieving believers try to explain away the magnificent faith promises available in this Bible to all of us. And our unbelief is a great affront to the Lord. He said, we have not because we ask not. And we ask not often because we ask amiss and we don't have the faith to ask. Now let's look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 where Jesus described three characteristics of genuine disciples. And these paint a different picture of today's typical churchgoer. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him first deny himself. And then secondly, Jesus said, let him take up his cross daily. And then thirdly, Jesus said, and follow me. In most churches in the West, self-denial and daily cross-bearing are not popular sermon titles. We're much more likely to want to hear a message on chasing our dreams. The main theme of Western Christianity seems to be nowadays all you have to do is to be saved is to believe in Jesus. But faith in Jesus is more than fire insurance. In reality, Jesus taught, if you want to follow me, you have to count the cost. You're going to have to take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and obey me in order to follow me. My word must abide in you, and you must keep my word, and it must remain in you. 
Obedience is his requirement. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, something quite terrifying. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So lordship is not a casual commitment. Jesus says it's the doers, the obedient followers, not those who give mere lip service who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I know some of you will argue. After all, recently we've celebrated the 500th year of the Reformation, the move of God that recovered the truth that it's by grace we're saved through faith. That doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone, salvation is a gift of God, lest any man should boast of his works. Okay, yet the New Testament also teaches that faith without works is dead. So all in all, the gospel is a call to follow the Lord obediently day after day. Salvation is not just a one-time walk down an aisle at a revival meeting to make a decision for Jesus. And salvation is not just a signature on a decision card. As helpful as those practices can be, I speak as an evangelist. It's a commitment to follow the Lord, however, until the end. So it's surely a gospel scandal when sinners are told that if they want to be saved and go to heaven, all they need to do is, quote, accept, unquote, Jesus. People are, are advised just accept him as Lord and Savior, as if by accepting him into your life, you're doing Jesus a favor. I think a much better phrase is to receive the Lord, receive the Savior into our hearts, into our lives, into our destinies, futures, and wills, because salvation encompasses a lot more than mental assent just to accept Jesus. In his book, Christ's Call to Discipleship, author Jim Boyce wrote that in good times, the cost of discipleship does not seem very high. In times of prosperity, there's the temptation to become a nominal believer without actually undergoing radical transformation implied by a true conversion. But in countries where Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved in the Lord's work enough to be considered decent or respectable, but their lives are not really transformed. That's why cynics dismiss nominal Christians as hypocrites. But Boyce noted that in days of adversity and persecution, those who become Christians count the cost of discipleship carefully before taking up the cross of the Nazarene. Amen. Christians in the Middle East and those suffering under regimes of dictators don't need the message hammered home of cross-bearing. More Christians today are reportedly being martyred for their faith than in the history of the church. Persecuted believers know the cost and they're willing to pay the price. For them, they've purchased the pearl of great price and they consequently experience the fellowship of the Lord's suffering. Well now, what did Jesus actually command believers to do? He said, go into all the world and make 
what? Disciples. He didn't say make decisions or make believers because even the demons believe in the Lord and tremble. A disciple is different from a believer. The word disciple implies discipline and practice, discipline in self-denial, discipline in never giving up when we're hated, persecuted, rejected. Despite the personal costs, the good news is the invitation is still open to everybody. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wishes or so chooses, let him or her deny themselves, take up their crosses daily and follow me. Jesus is saying to everybody in all cultures everywhere, you want to be my true follower? You are welcome. There is room for you at the cross, but there are certain qualifications. You're going to have to die to self. That's why Yeshua said, Many are called, but few are chosen. That saying means the invitation is open to the many, but in actuality, few are willing to step forward and count the cost and decide to be chosen. A life of following Jesus is a life of sacrifice, but it's also an adventure. To me, following the Lord is a life of discovery, adventure, supernatural guidance, and getting answers to prayer. But the hordes who are ambitious to make money or who don't want to leave the comforts of home are not necessarily going to buy into it. How many megachurches do you know that really teach self-denial, cross-bearing, and agreeing to follow Jesus into the unknown? If we don't repent of our nominal Christianity in the West, someday soon, when the judge returns many professing Christians will cry out, why did the churches lie to us? Why didn't you tell us the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Right now, few pulpits are willing to teach the truth about God's word. Instead, many preachers are held captive by a spirit of fear. They're afraid they'll be mocked or marginalized as extremists. And, of course, they fear losing financial support. Well, George Barna is a well-known American researcher. He's founder of the Barna Group. According to his research, a whopping 90% of conservative evangelical pastors don't preach about abortion, controversial sexual issues, politics, Bible prophecy, Israel, or the Middle East. A survey conducted by George Barna polled clergy members anonymously to get forthright responses. I fact-checked the source and discovered that Barna had indeed compiled information over a two-year period to monitor theological and political views of conservative pastors. And when polled about the key issues of the day, the majority of these conservative ministers, remember we're talking not about liberals, but conservatives, 90% admitted that the Bible addresses every current issue. But when asked, are you teaching your people what the Bible says on these issues? Less than 10% said they're willing to speak about the key issues of the day. Less than 10%. We've got to pray into this for change. Isn't it time for pastors to stand up? Conservative evangelicals were asked, how often do you preach on subjects such as Bible prophecy, abortion, 
the temptations of deviant sex, and the things that are driving our culture. And 90% said we never talk about these things from our pulpits. If we speak about controversial issues, such as same-sex marriage, if we share our views on Israel and Bible prophecy, or the First and Second Amendments of the Constitution and so forth, many people sitting in the pews are going to get angry, and there'll be a mass exodus as a result. They'll leave the church and take their money with them. So only a handful of conservative ministers claim they're willing to preach on controversial issues. The research team also asked these pastors if they're willing to encourage their congregants to become active in the political process. But Barna said their willingness to engage in government topics was almost nil. So much censorship and self-censorship is going on. So when we talk about the separation of church and state, churches have in fact separated themselves from the activities of the state. And Barna says it's detrimental to everybody when churches are not willing to get involved. In the survey, the pastors were also asked to describe their definitions of success. And their answers were very telling. The five success factors they listed were not the numbers of salvations, healings, or answers to prayer, or missionaries, and so forth, but their success revolved around the levels of attendance, financial giving, number of programs, their number of staff, and the church's square footage. But for heaven's sake, Jesus didn't die for square footage, nor did he die for attendance numbers, and he certainly didn't die for offerings. Barna is hoping that through his research, pastors and conservative voters can become more active and influential in the political arena. He believes that educational and training levels of pastors must be challenged. In most Bible schools and seminaries, students are not taught how to engage churches in the issues. Mostly, seminarians are taught to exegete scriptures. They're taught something about the history of the Bible and so forth, but they're not prepared to engage the world today, according to the Barna survey. I'm sharing all of this because we need to pray for our Bible schools, seminaries, and the occupants of our pulpits. Another scandal that I mentioned earlier is the lack of belief in the promises of God. It saddens me how even clergymen try to explain away the promises of God in this word for divine health and miraculous healings. Yes, we're told to take up our cross. We are to suffer the loss of all things potentially. But the Lord does promise us his presence and divine health in this fallen world. He promises a supernatural walk of faith. And these promises are good for all who can believe them. With God's help, I refuse to explain away the glorious promises that daily should give us faith to overcome obstacles. I want to give glory to God who in the New Testament, according to Ephesians 3.20, is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And that power is resurrection power. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit. So remember this verse, Ephesians 3.20. Paul uses a double term of excess to explain the superabundance, 
the absolute infinity of God's power. And how often do you hear believers quoting Ephesians 3.20? He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ever ask or think. May I encourage you never to be afraid to expect great things from God. Our rule should always be to expect great things and attempt great things with the Lord's help because without Him, we can't do anything anyway. Exceedingly abundantly above what we can ask or think is a very useful gospel promise. Ephesians 3.20 says we can't think big enough and we can't ask big enough because God's ability and answers are always so much greater than our finite minds can imagine. God does the impossible. Let's refuse to limit how he will work because God has resources beyond our capabilities. Yet the biggest sin in the church today is the sin of unbelief. God has given us all these awesome promises in this word and we're not believing him as we should. And on top of that, our faith today should be greater now. This is because the prophet Daniel prophesied that in the last days, knowledge shall increase. That's a general statement. That means knowledge in all areas should increase, including faith, not just technology and so forth. We now have 3D printers that can duplicate incredibly complex machinery. There's the most amazing nanotechnology. And just as, as knowledge has increased in technology, I believe Daniel's prophecy should also apply to the realm of faith. Jesus said, if two of you on earth will agree about anything they ask for, it will be done by my Father in heaven. So many believers are going through life defeated because they're not believing God. So what infirmity are you suffering from today? Can't the Lord we serve heal us? Have you ever prayed for God to heal your bladder, your heart, your knee, your aching back? Have you asked him to take away that lump to dissolve the kidney stone, the pain or whatever is ailing you? Well, the theme of this program, Daniel 11:32b, says that the people who know God will be strong and do exploits. And if our God is the God of Ephesians 3:20, we have to admit that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can even think or ask. So let's decide to serve the God of Ephesians 3.20, the God who does more than we can ask or think. I'd like to testify that all these years, he's never allowed our ministry to be in debt. He's kept us alive and going forward with explicit guidance because he's in Ephesians 3.20, God of supply, healing, and unlimited breakthroughs. I want you to know that the Lord is whatever you need him to be in your situation. What's the only limitation? Unbelief on our part. In the meantime, we must continue to be faithful watchmen upon the walls of Jerusalem. And we watchers can stay in touch with one another through social media and check out our website at exploits.tv where you can find all our previous videos for viewing around the clock. And have you downloaded our free Jerusalem Channel app from your favorite app store? Our app offers daily Bible readings in all of our videos and ebooks. The grace of the Lord be with you always. Keep contending for the faith. Keep praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. 
I'm Christine Dark. Maranatha and Shalom. <laughs>